There is a weird fight going on in academic evangelicalism right now. And I dove down the rabbit hole so you don't have to. And it is dark and scary down there. Welcome back to Good Monsters. My name is Cody Lawrence. Uh, we're going to talk about Thomas Aquinas and his rise over the past few years in evangelicalism. So this all started when I started seeing Thomas Aquinas all over social media. It was everywhere. Everybody seemed to be arguing about it in a lot of the people who I follow. And I thought that is the strangest thing. He's dead. He's been dead for hundreds of years. And you would think any arguments about the guy would have been resolved a long time ago. If he was good or bad or or whatever. And I don't really care, honestly, about Thomas Aquinas, yay or nay. I think you can read whoever you want to read. But I just thought it was awfully strange that this fight was sparked. And I even tried asking people questions and they would give me very strange responses like, um, you know, I would ask, what's all this about Thomas Aquinas? What's the big deal? Um, And I'll tell you more about what the things that people were arguing were in a bit. But I just thought the fight was so strange and I watched this play out for a few months and it kind of comes in waves. but ultimately, I, I didn't really care. Like, I was like, why are people fighting about this? What? How strange. You know, if you if you want to read someone, read him. You know, I, I have read books by atheists, and so should you. You know, like, who, who cares who you're reading? Uh, it's okay to like people that you have disagreements with. And it's also okay to dislike people that you have disagreements with. Who cares? But... I care a little more now and it's okay for you to not care, but I think this is a very fascinating topic that I want you to travel along with me in just to see, uh, all of the, all of what is under the surface. See, see more of a full picture of the iceberg here because I went down the rabbit hole and I found some very interesting connections and correlations, uh, and the iceberg is much bigger and deeper than I originally thought it was. So here's basically the argument. Here's the argument that I would see play out on social media from my prior naive um, perspective. Basically, one side was saying something like, and they still do, Thomas Aquinas is the greatest theologian ever to live. And then they go to his grave and dig him up and grab his boots and lick him. <sighs> Boot lickers. The other side says no. <laughs> and they post all kinds of issues with Thomas Aquinas. And then the Thomas Aquinas folks, the Aquinians, the Thomists, they say, What are you, some kind of heretic? Because, of course, Thomas Aquinas is the greatest theologian ever to exist. So, denying anything he said must, of course, be heresy. And so, the other side says, My brother in Christ, why do you like this guy so much? And then it just goes around in circles, you know. 
defending like, no, we're not heretics and here's why. And then the other people are like, well, you obviously are because Thomas Aquinas is the bomb diggity. Very weird. And I didn't really understand this, you know, and I would jump in at any point and ask questions and people would be like, well, Thomas Aquinas sucks or Thomas Aquinas is the best thing since sliced bread. And I'm, I, I don't, I don't care. <laughs> so here's what I do when I see a weird issue blowing up that I don't really have a lot of knowledge about. I look at who is behind the issue, spearheading it on both sides, just to kind of get a picture of where they're coming from. And it seemed like on one side, the major people who were being attacked on the anti-Thomas Aquinas side, if, if we can even say that, and you'll understand a little more later, is uh, James White and Owen Strand. Now, I really like Owen Strand. I'm taking more of a liking to James White after all of this stuff that's happening. (laughs) But I like them because they have taken the correct side on all of the right issues that I really care about these past couple of years. They've been fighting against all of the right things, And they've been saying a lot of things that other people are, frankly, afraid to say. On the other side is this group of people that are trying to push Thomas Aquinas, and a lot of them are academics. They're in the seminary. In fact, it seems as though Midwestern Seminary is kind of spearheading this Thomas Aquinas effort. Midwestern Seminary isn't on the right side of the controversial cultural issues that were happening. In fact, I was on campus one time with a cup of coffee that I bought from the school and somebody like, you know, came out of the cracks in the walls and said, hey, you got to put your mask on right now. It's unsafe. Very unloving, I thought. Uh, they said, you can only take your mask down if you're drinking a cup of coffee, which like, what's the, what, what, what's the, what, while I'm drinking, like, why, why do you even have coffee here in the first place? Is it, I don't know, to make money. If you were really concerned, you would just close your coffee shop, right? You bozos. Anyway, that's just one of my many interesting Midwestern stories, not to mention the kind of trash they sell in the bookstore sometimes. Uh, And, and the amount of Thomas Aquinas that they encourage in the bookstore, not that that's a problem necessarily, like I said, to read Thomas Aquinas, because I don't care who you read. You can read whoever you want to read. (laughs) But that, again, that also will make more sense to you as the story goes on. Midwestern isn't on the right side of this issue. A lot of these academic people, they have not been speaking out on the right side of all of these things that I care about. And then Owen and James, their friends, they have. I thought that was interesting. So here's what I heard. I had someone explain to me the, the the issue, and then you know, I've seen the arguments on Twitter. I've I've been trying to <clears throat> kind of piece the puzzle pieces together over the past few months. So here's kind of what I've come up with um, is is a little is like the next level below in the argument. First, guys like Owen Strand and James White are something called Vantillians. And here is Van Til's problem, according to these guys. Here's Van Til's problem. He hates what's called natural theology. 
which is the way that God reveals himself through nature. Van Til hates that. And so does Owen Strand, and so does James White. These guys say. <clears throat> People like Owen and James, they believe that the only way you can know God is through Scripture. And they're totally throwing out the natural theology part of it. And I'm thinking, well, of course we can know God through nature. The Bible itself clearly says that everybody has a knowledge of God, just inherently, through nature. So that, I mean, like, clearly, I know that. And these guys are smarter than me. <laughs> so why don't they know that? That's strange. They say, Thomas Aquinas, they say, bless his little Catholic heart. Hail Mary, full of grace. Saw God, Thomas Aquinas saw God in the world. And was simply, all he was trying to do was to show that we can know things about God through natural theology. And then evil, terrible people like Van Til and his heretical followers like Owen Strand and James White, they come along and they try to throw out the best theologian ever to live. What kind of Christians are those? That's what they say. So again, I think, man, Owen Strand and James White, I think I trust these guys. That sounds like a pretty big deal. They can't be right about everything, of course, but they're right about the things that I care about. How can it be that the guys who are so wrong about all of these cultural important issues over the past couple of years are correct about this thing that's evidently a big fight that all these people care about? And then the people who I trust who have been right and are on the right side of the fight in these important things, they're on the wrong side of the fight in this other big thing that's going on. What's up with that? That's super weird. So here's what I did. I listened to a bunch of Owen Strand's podcasts on the matter and a bunch of James White's podcasts on the matter. And I also picked up Van Til's book, Christian Apologetics, which is... Um, one, probably the main book that these people have an issue with. And I read it. And here's, here's the reality. Cornelius Van Til was a famous Christian apologist who developed or at least popularized an apologetic method called presuppositionalism. He was not a big fan of Thomas Aquinas, Van Til. And he did, in fact, believe in natural theology. <laughs> Shocker. And so does James White and so does Owen Strand, in reality. He says, Van Til, says throughout his book that natural theology is necessary. There are quotes. You can even just look this up on Google, Van Til on natural theology, and you will see tons of quotes proving this argument wrong. It's, it was like a lie. This is what they're teaching people, evidently, at Midwestern. He says throughout the book that natural theology is necessary for a Christian to know God and that it even validates the truth of Scripture. So our experience of 
natural theology validates scripture and it works the other way around. Scripture validates the true things we know about God through nature. Really interesting. Totally contradictory to the arguments that I've heard from their side against Owen Strand and James White. Why? I also find it really interesting that I've heard from both of them that they feel like all of the arguments against them are straw men, which means that people come up with weak or fake versions of their arguments and attack them, say that they believe all these crazy things that they don't believe and make them seem really stupid and ignorant, which is exactly the argument that I heard against them, which is why I thought, no way do they believe that. The Bible so obviously says that natural theology exists. Oh, and, and then another interesting thing I wanted to mention, whenever I was listening to these guys, there's an especially good uh, podcast by Owen Strand. I think it's called, he re-released it recently, actually. It's called um, Trinitarian Truth in These Troubled Times, something like that. You can look it up. It's very good. But uh, he kind of describes this argument uh, much more in detail from his perspective, and he's the one who's being attacked. So I highly recommend if you want to learn more. That's probably the next place you should go. But in that podcast, he says something very interesting. He says, I'm going to give you my opponent's argument in the most faithful and strongest way that I possibly can. And I want you to see the coarseness of the people that are attacking me and the... uh, the unfaithfulness to my arguments, the twisting of of my arguments that they're using against me. And I want you to see how gracious that I'm being toward them. I want you to see how um, faithful I'm trying my best to represent their argument. And he said that he wants that to also be a witness of the truth of what he's saying. And I thought, man, that's powerful. Because the stuff I was seeing so far... Totally were straw men, tons of them. But Owen gave a very strong version of their argument, and then he also gave the reasons why he disagrees. Now, he also said that the people who disagrees with him are his brothers in Christ. But then many of these people who disagree with Owen, they call him a heretic. And here's some of the reasons why. This, it's not only about Thomas. The iceberg goes even deeper now. There are fundamental Christian doctrines that seem to be in being contested here. And one of them is the Trinity itself. And there, there is this view, and Owen believes you can hold either one. And it seems to me like you can hold either view. And most people, you, prob- you probably won't even care. <laughs> but here's, here's Owen's view. It has to do with submission. He believes that Jesus is eternally in submission to the Father. Uh, There are various verses that prove this. The strongest verse that he gave for me is that Jesus currently sits at the right hand of the Father. So Jesus for eternity is in submission to the Father. They're not sitting on the same throne. You know, they're not overlapping. (laughs) They are Jesus, who is God, is eternally in submission to the Father, who is God. And Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are one, but they are three distinct persons. And the person of Jesus seems, scripturally, to be eternally in submission to the person of the Father. Interesting. And 
as I was studying about this concept, I also thought, wow, that is a beautiful representation of why um, our concept of submission to things like the church or to a wife to her husband or to a man to Jesus or to uh, us to the government, you know, that's why that that is a beautiful representation of good submission. Like submission isn't just something that God dreamed up one day. But submission is actually a part of the character of God that he has given part of to us to embody in the family. And I thought, man, that's cool. That's beautiful. (laughs) But these other people, they're like, no, 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 God's one. So there can't be submission. Jesus's human nature is in submission to the father's divine nature. But Jesus's divine nature is not in submission. Who cares? You know, these things aren't in scripture. And so these are doctrines that we have to piece together. And just because Thomas Aquinas says something, it doesn't make it necessarily true. And it also doesn't make it necessarily true that if someone disagrees with you, that they're a heretic. People can have different opinions about certain things and still be a totally faithful Christian. And scripturally, it makes total sense to me that Jesus is eternally in submission to the Father. If you disagree with that, hey, you're my brother or sister in Christ anyway, and that's okay. I don't know much about this myself, so I would actually love to hear other arguments about this. But anyway, one side is calling Owen and James a heretic because they believe that Jesus is in eternal submission to the Father. And I, who like me, again, I don't care. I don't really care about this argument. It's not a central issue for me. I would much rather be arguing about things like critical race theory. You know, I think that's a much more important hill to die on than something like this. It's cool, it's fun to think about, but who cares? This also gets into the concept of divine simplicity, which is another doctrine of the Trinity that says that God does not consist of parts. God does not consist of parts. So God's love is God's mercy, is God's justice, and so on. These are all the same, and we we have names for the ways that we experience God's character and perhaps it appears to us in parts. Because of our limited understanding of God, we are finite creatures. We are not God. We cannot fully wrap our heads around who God is. The the, the Thomists, they take divine simplicity very far. It, it almost seems like a contradiction under their view of divine simplicity that Jesus can't even be a separate person from God. There are three separate persons, but also the Trinity is one God. There's another interesting thing that I didn't really expect coming into the equation. Confessions and creeds. We have things like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and and confessions and so on. And we also have traditional church uh, father, or well, traditional church theologians like Thomas Aquinas, who have evidently helped develop Christian thought over the years. And so these things are very important to some people. And things like confessions and creeds, they're important to me. They should be important to you too because church tradition does matter. It does matter if it lines up with scripture. It seems like a lot of these people will say that the creeds are necessary for understanding scripture properly. And that's where my side has a problem. If someone had the Bible without the creeds, they can be saved. If somebody had the creeds 
without the Bible, like if the Bible didn't exist, we wouldn't have the creeds. The creed, the truth of the creeds are reliant completely upon the truth of scripture. And so to rise the creeds up to the point to the same authority of scripture is a serious problem because the creeds are not scripture. And so the argument goes, um, like if someone will be like, yeah, but if you deny the things in the creeds, then you're not a Christian. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But only because you're also denying the things in scripture, these central Christian truths, but you wouldn't know what the central Christian truths were without the creeds. That's not true. That's not true whatsoever. We don't need the creeds to understand scripture. The creeds are not on the same level of scripture. It seems like the kind of argument that they're pushing with, with the confessions and creeds and Thomas Aquinas is to, to say that scripture alone is not our ultimate authority. Um, not all these people are necessarily doing that, but that is that seems to be the direction that they're going. And so watch out for that. Catholics believe that church tradition is basically on equal footing with scripture, or sometimes even that church tradition is a higher authority than scripture because we can't, the church teaches, we can't understand scripture without church tradition. The church needs to tell us what scripture means so that we can understand it properly. But that's not true at all. It's not true. But here's the biggest issue. I've saved the best for last. Here's the biggest issue with Thomas Aquinas. He was a Catholic. If any academics stumble their way onto this podcast who can only speak words in three syllables or more, let me speak very slowly so that you can understand. He was a Catholic. But Cody, are you saying that Catholics aren't Christians? Some Catholics are not Christians. Many Catholics are not Christians. Many Christians are not Christians. Do you catch my drift? But the things that the Catholic Church teach at its core, if you look through the the catechism, if you follow all of the teachings of a faithful Catholic, you will not be saved. Faithful Catholics cannot be Christians. There are many unfaithful Catholics who are faithful Christians, which is wonderful. And it's a grace from God that they exist. There are many Christians who go to good churches and they're not saved. Thomas Aquinas defended the papacy, the Pope, the priests, the bishops, and so on. That means that we can't approach God so that we have to go through a representative instead. And that would be the Pope. So the Pope represents us to Jesus or represents Jesus to us. Um, he is He's like God's mouthpiece. Priests, we go to the priests to get forgiveness. The priest goes to God to forgive us, a lot like they did in the Old Testament. Uh, but the thing is, that's Jesus' job. They're, they're throwing out Jesus in the papacy. The papacy is 100% inconsistent with Scripture. You cannot rely on a priest and his magical, mystical words to save you. That's what Thomas Aquinas believed. He defended the papacy. That's one problem. And that comes with being a Catholic. Thomas Aquinas did not understand salvation by grace alone. We are not saved by our works, but we are saved alone by the grace of God. 
our works play absolutely no part of it. Catholics believe that we have to do good works to be saved. If we don't, we go to purgatory. We're like purified, whatever. Purgatory is not in the Bible. Then we're shipped off to heaven. Thomas Aquinas did not believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Got to have the church. Got to have works. Cody, are you saying that you don't need good works as a Christian? Good works are a fruit. Good works come from being saved. They do not save you. This is not what Thomas Aquinas believed. Thomas Aquinas did not understand the gospel. He didn't understand the gospel. That is the gospel, that we are saved in Jesus through the repentance of our sins. If we have to go to a priest to repent of our sins, there goes the repentance part. If we are saved by our works and not by grace alone, there goes Jesus. He misunderstands the gospel. Does this mean that Thomas Aquinas didn't say true things? No. Does this mean that Thomas Aquinas and reading him can't be helpful to you? No. No, read him. If you want, absolutely. Sure. There are probably better authors out there, though, that develop his thoughts or that have their own corresponding thoughts who are... Uh, you know, faithful Christians, which perhaps we should be reading them instead. But hey, if if it floats your boat to read Thomas Aquinas and you yourself are a faithful Christian and you have the discernment to distinguish between the good and the bad, yeah, read him. Who cares? I don't. Is Thomas Aquinas the greatest theologian ever to live? Well, one's status as a theologian, I think... Depends on the theology, does it not? If Thomas Aquinas misunderstood the gospel, then he wasn't a very good theologian, was he? Seminaries. Does that mean we shouldn't read Thomas Aquinas? No. Read whatever you want, like I said. But does that mean that we should be removing content from faithful Protestant theologians in seminaries and replacing them with Papist, gospel-denying Catholics and pushing these ideas on future pastors in the biggest Christian denomination in the world from supposedly one of the most conservative seminaries in the world. They are for the church, after all. Not a chance, buckos. We should not be doing that. <sighs> be discerning, as always. I'll catch you in the next episode.